This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Owen Strand. He is a provost and research professor of theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Arkansas. He's also the senior fellow with the Family Research Council. He earned his PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and his MDiv from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he has authored a bunch of books. I think it's close to two dozen now, including Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind, The Pastor as Public Theologian, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, and his latest book, which we spent the overwhelming amount of our time today talking about it's this Christianity and wokeness how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it guys we, we had such a good time on this podcast it took us a long time to get this kind of worked out because he was doing a bunch of interviews and then you know we we're trying to squeeze it in didn't quite work out with the schedule so this was a long time coming this was literally months in the making but the majority of what we talked about today is we talked about how a lot of Christians are becoming almost romantically enamored with this woke ideology and not even understanding that it's happening Okay, you have a lot of churches that are kind of buying into critical race theory and buying into it as just, oh, we're just going to use this as a tool with which to differentiate ourselves and to view the world and all these different things. So we spend a lot of time digging into that. We go we go deep into the definitions like we define wokeness, critical race theory, anti-racism, whiteness. Uh, we even get into soft postmodernism versus hard postmodernism. This was a mind-blowing thing for me as I was reading his book. It's like, oh man, I've been preparing you guys, my audience for this soft postmodernism and not the hard postmodernism that we're seeing. But also we just talked about how, you know, wokeness really as an ideology doesn't have any grounding, but people are pretending like it does. You know, we get into reparations and generational sin, but then we took a hard left turn and we started talking about big churches and what churches are getting wrong in terms of how they're operating. We talk about manhood and guys like the last 15 minutes of this, we really start getting into manhood within the church and manhood in terms of rites of passage and things like that. And I was like, crap, I wish I would have started that in the first 10 minutes, but I'm so glad we spent so much time dealing with the book. But man, there, there were so many good things about this book. So I don't want to keep them from you. But before we get to that, I do want to remind you guys about the upper room and the King's Council. So this is big time attention to all business owners out there, entrepreneurs, soon to be entrepreneurs. The upper room and the King's Council is something that would be a tremendous resource for you. So their mission is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on earth. And so how these, these two organizations do that is they equip entrepreneurs like the guys listening to this with the tools, systems, and frameworks necessary in order for them to discover, develop, and deploy very, very important to deploy their God-given vision into the marketplace. So specifically, it's talked about the upper room because this is a mastermind. So you probably heard of different masterminds, but this one specifically is for existing entrepreneurs or business owners that are looking for a, a tribe of like-minded kind of bold kingdom leaders that are really, really eager to engage in the battle of business. This really is something that would be a tremendous asset to you. So they host virtual and in-person events every month focusing on business strategies that allow these, these individuals, these entrepreneurs these business owners to increase sustainable revenue while providing ongoing accountability. So this is highly customizable to your business because depending upon what kind of business you're in, it may not be the same things that you're going to want as somebody else. So I've spoken to their group before. Guys, if you want more info on this, go back to episode 355 of this podcast. That's with Riley Meek. He's the founder of the King's Council and the Upper Room. So that episode is called The King Entrepreneurship and Money. Again, episode 355. But guys, the cool thing that he said in that podcast is he wanted to give a special offer 
offer just to listeners of Undaunted Life, a man's podcast, because he is so busy. He does so many different things, but he actually wants to do one-on-ones with you guys. So if you feel like you could get some value out of the upper room, he said that he wants you to text upper room to 727-472-3860. Guys, this will be in the show notes. Don't crash your car trying to jot this down. And when you do that, you'll get an application and you'll get a time to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek, the founder of the Upper Room and the King's Council. So again, that's Upper Room. So that's U-P-P-E-R-R-O-O-M to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the Upper Room and the King's Council, Riley Meek. So guys, definitely check that out. It'll be well worth your time to spend some time with Riley Meek. But guys, I know you're here for this interview with Owen. So without further ado, let's get into it. Owen Strand, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey man, thanks for having me, Kyle. Did, did I nail the last name? I've been practicing the last name for like a few weeks now because it's <laughs> definitely not pronounced the way it's spelled. It is definitely not. You got it exactly right. It's a Scottish last name. So it's kind of a warrior last name, if I may, but it's with a Gaelic pronunciation, which means that no one ever gets it right. <laughs> I was about except to ask you. you. Okay. I was about to ask you, if you go to like a coffee shop or something like that, well, I guess you don't ever give me your last name, but has anyone ever like accidentally gotten it correct? Like a teacher in school or anything like that? Nope. Okay. Well, I am the smartest man alive, at least for the next 30 (laughs) seconds, because I nailed it right from the get go. Maybe it's, it's my Irish Scottish heritage uh, that came out in the Gaelic there, but you know, we got a lot of ground that we're going to cover in today's podcast. I'm very excited for this, but I do want to start simple just to kind of give guys an idea. Of course, I talked about you a little bit in the intro, but you're a theology professor and an author, but I'm assuming you didn't think that's what you'd be doing when you were five years old. You probably thought you were going to be an astronaut or a firefighter or a baseball player or something like that. So how did you end up making theology your career? Yeah, I wanted to be a basketball player, which at five, seven was not the best uh, personal estimation. Yeah, uh, Muxy Bogues, in- notwithstanding, or Spud <laughs> Webb, but you know, there's only two yeah. of those guys for a reason. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I really was gunning for as a young man. I grew up in the 90s. And so it's the era of the Fab Five, Michigan basketball, Jordan, baggy shorts, rap music. I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Maine. And so I loved all that gritty urban culture, even though I grew up in rural Maine. And so that really shaped my hopes and my expectations. And again, though a shorty, I I had a fairly fairly tough spirit in me. So I, I liked having the odds against me in terms of that challenge of becoming a good basketball player and worked really hard at my game. I would dribble in the summer uh, on, on my tar driveway until my fingers would crack and bleed. I mean, I worked hard. Suffice it to say that the, the highest echelon of glory I ever reached was intramural basketball champion at a division three college. So didn't quite pan out. And here we are talking about uh, other topics. Well, uh, that's kind of a good idea of, uh, Hey guys, always work harder, right? One of the cool things that I remember someone, they did a study of all these team captains that are like the captain of, you know, Barca or the captain of this random team or that team. They weren't always the most talented kids when they were younger, right? They weren't the savants in elementary school. So they had to work really, really, really hard. And then their genetics caught up to them and it added to all that hard work. But Hey, I'm only 5'10". So, you know, there weren't a whole lot of major league baseball players that are 5'10". So I was kind of in the same, the same world as you. So I, I guess, again, what, what kind of got you into the world of theology? though, because like, again, that's not normally a track, even if you're interested in theology, which a lot of people that listen to the show are, but that's what you do as a profession. How did you end up doing all that? 
a winding path, uh, mm. like a lot of men's paths, you know, there's not necessarily a, here's how to be a theologian at age 16, you know, A to, <laughs> a to B to C to D to E. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. I became a born again believer when I was about nine years old. I went to a very simple Baptist youth camp and heard the simple gospel, knew that I deserved hell for my sin, heard that Jesus was uh, the one who gave his life, gave his blood to wash me clean and satisfy the wrath of the Father on my behalf. And so I trusted in Jesus from a young age and followed Christ in a very simple way, nothing spectacular, and then uh, went to Bowdoin College in Maine, a kind of tough liberal arts school. That shaped me into more of a writer and a thinker. As I said earlier, um, I was really focused on sports like a lot of young men in high school, but then I started to get more serious about the life of the mind, as we might call it, in college. And um, God then called me into the ministry when I was at Bowdoin, a very secular place of about 20 students would show up for the university group uh, that met each week. That was the only Christian fellowship group on campus. And it was then that I began to get a zeal for preaching and teaching the word of God. And then people around me, men, pastors who were discipling me said, you should go to seminary. You should you should develop this gift and study the word of God more. And then I went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, then I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago to do my PhD in historical theology. And then I basically just got a, a theology post at Boyce College and Southern Seminary where I had been. And that's what really kickstarted being a theologian. But Kyle, honestly, I had no plans to do this. There truly was no master mm -hmm. plan, even though a lot of guys in the ministry world would love to, to be a theologian of some kind. I kind of backed my way into it. And what I would actually say, of course, as a believer is that it was the grace of God that led me there. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people that have ended up doing great things, they backed into it. It wasn't always part of the plan. You know, the best laid plans always end up getting thrown out the window whenever there's a little bit of resistance. And I, I have so many theological questions I want to ask you, but we're going to save that. Even though it took me months to, to, to get this all worked out, I want to save some of those because I want to spend the majority of our time talking about this book, Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. So as soon as your publisher sent this to me, I was like, yep, we definitely need to have this guy on here. We need to kind of figure out, you know, kind of where your ideology is coming from and we're going to dig deep into it. But I always like hearing from the, you know, the words of the author from their own words from the horse's mouth. What is the book about in general, like 30,000 foot view? And also what do you want readers to get from it? And then we'll dive in deeper. The book is about this ideology that is everywhere around us called wokeness. That's the term I use to describe social justice critical race theory and woke ideology. Uh, I began to see like everybody else out there who has uh, senses and uh, innate functioning, that there was this massive movement reshaping the church, the culture, the university, entertainment, politics, and so on. And I didn't see a lot of theologians or pastors uh, working really hard to respond to this ideology. There have been numerous developments in the evangelical and Baptist world that have not been positive in the last five years, basically, and that left a lot of people confused about critical race theory, for example. Some Baptists a couple years ago said that basically critical race theory is a useful analytical tool that helps explain the world. And um, I'll be honest with you, when that when that was um, stated in, I believe, June 2019, I knew that I didn't agree, and I knew that this movement was not building from a corner of the world where I found myself. But like tons of people out there, including, I'm sure, many of your listeners over time, 
I didn't really know what this was. I hadn't read critical race theory. I hadn't read a lot of critical theory. And so it took me a little bit of time reading books, getting caught up. But then I realized, oh, wait a minute. This is a specter. This is a tsunami. This isn't a little, you know, ankle uh, height wave. This is going to sweep over everything and change everything. And so I'm nothing, Kyle. Uh, I'm not God's answer to anything. But I, I felt called. Uh, to to respond. And a church, last thing I'll say, a church in the Minneapolis area reached out to me winter 2020 about doing talks on critical race theory. I'd done a few blogs about it after I started reading and getting equipped as a theologian. So I was like, I'd love to come. But that's in like February, March 2020. The chronology matters here, obviously. Sure. Then Minneapolis blows up in June 2020, late May 2020. And I'm like, oh, that that church isn't calling me back. You know, that is the hottest topic on the planet. They did call me back and they asked me to come in uh, early October 2020. So I did a series of talks called Christianity and Wokeness, where I really buckled down and gave the best overview of the system I could and the Christian response to it. And then uh, that became a book for Salem that you were discussing earlier. Yeah. And, and you say several times in the book that this is really a primer. I don't think you even use that word, but it really is a primer to the subject matter, but you do kind of point people to other resources, but there's a couple of quotes from the beginning that I think will kind of sum up what this book is. So the first one is this, the driving thesis of the book, Christianity and wokeness are not compatible. Christianity is the truth of God found in the word of God. Wokeness, as we are at pains to say, is a different religion altogether. And then there's another one here. Wokeness is not, as we have been at pains to say, benign. It is an and and or atheological. It is a direct attack on the gospel itself, and it is a replacement gospel. There's no room for merging such teaching with the teaching of scripture. You choose one or you choose the other. This is not a system compatible with Christian faith. It is the antithesis of the Christian faith, and it is definitely an existential threat to humanity as Kendi uh, to use Kendi's line, that's Abram X Kendi. And so I think that kind of gives a lot of people a good idea of kind of where we're at. And we'll get more into some, some well-meaning Christians. But before we get any further, I really think it's important to do some of this boring stuff of defining our terms, okay? So specifically for our audience, I'd love to for you to define wokeness, critical race theory, anti-racism, and whiteness. And, and again, you spend a lot of time on each one of those four things in the book, but just to give us an idea as we move forward in this conversation, let's start with wokeness and then we'll hit the other three. What is a good definition for wokeness? Wokeness is waking up to the nature of systemic racism as really the fundamental problem of society. So racism is not just found in discrete acts where somebody yells at somebody on a street or, or does something terrible. Uh, uh, racism is not just in the American past in terms of slavery or Jim Crow, as it clearly is. No, racism is invisible. Racism is what, in particular, white people transmit at all times and all places by virtue of being the dominant group in society, especially in light of the American past. And so wokeness means, or, or being woke means waking up to that reality and recognizing that whiteness is the systemic cancer upon our society. Okay, now critical race theory. 
Critical race theory is the theory that helps you supposedly see the power dynamics of the world in racial terms. So when you embrace critical race theory, you're working off of a Marxist system that understands that there are racial majority, there's a racial majority group and there's racial minorities and the racial majority has power over the racial minority and expresses and uses that power over minorities in all sorts of ways. Anti-racism. If you are anti-racist, according to Ibram X. Kendi, who's the leading prophet of wokeness and others, then what you do is you commit yourself to fighting white supremacy and uh, systemic racism in all levels of society. And the way Kendi has it, either everything basically is acting in a racist way or an anti-racist way. So he really has a Manichaean kind of dualist understanding of the world where there's no gray areas. You're either terribly racist or you are ardently woke. And the target is always moving. All right, last one here, whiteness. Uh, Whiteness is a construct that has been used primarily by white people in order to foster racial power over racial minorities. Whiteness then is not just a skin color, it is an ideology, it is a way of being. Um, It is fostered and fomented by all levels of society, by violinists and birds and uh, target shoppers. And so basically, uh, if you apply the, the understanding of whiteness on the side of the woke, anywhere you have a lot of white people, just to put it bluntly, a little more bluntly than Uh, CRT folks would, you have a massive problem. And I'll just say this quickly, Kyle, there's so many places we could go in this conversation. And you've been very patient to get me on the podcast. Thank you. But um, basically, you could do what social justice, critical race theory and wokeness have done in America, in any society, anywhere there is a majority, this is a Marxist scheme, ultimately, Anywhere there's a majority, you could apply all the things I just said, doesn't even have to be racial, and you could thus gin up revolution and hatred uh, against that majority on the part of the minority. That's what Marx and Engels did economically. That's what the Frankfurt School did in the mid 20th century in Europe uh, culturally. And that's what the woke are doing today racially. Well, I'm so glad you're going into all this detail. And that's why it's so important, guys. This, this book is in the show notes. We're, we're not even going to be able to cover a tenth of, of the content of the book because so many guys want to be angry about CRT, but they have no idea what it is. They have no idea where it comes from. And they have no idea. Like I remember being on the back porch with a guy a couple of years ago. We're having a cigar and a whiskey. And I mentioned Marxism and he looks at me like I had a boob on the top of my head. He's like, what's that? And I'm like, wait, Marxism, like Karl Marx? Like the, the godfather of communism, nothing. He looked at me blank. This is a guy with a college degree with kids and a family. And it's just like, you know, that just wasn't his world. So you, you don't have any excuses here because it's creeping into all these different areas of life. But wokeness and, and CRT specifically, Owen, are creeping into the church. And you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but there are very, uh, there's a lot of well-meaning Christians, including some prominent pastors that say things like what you said earlier, that CRT is simply a, you know, a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And then there are even more well-meaning Christians that have bought into the idea that fighting for quote unquote social justice and being anti-racist or posting a black square on Instagram during the George Floyd riots of that summer, that that's a loving thing. So talk to me a little bit about the nefarious aspect of this, which is that it's creeping into the church and so so many people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. 
Okay, wow, this is so fun. Uh, first, I gotta say just a quick commercial on Karl Marx for your for your listeners because yeah. what you said is so helpful. Karl Marx with Engels doing really the heavy lifting, Communist mm-hmm. Manifesto, 1871, gave us history's most successful bad idea. More people have died under the banner of Marxist ideas than under any other banner in history. Oh, and I was asked a few years ago on a Q&A podcast, if I could delete one book from existence, what would it be and why? And immediately it was the Communist Manifesto because of everything we saw in the 20th century, but go. Yes. And so what people don't know is that Marx's theory wasn't just economic. It wasn't just about the bourgeoisie and owning the means of production and these sorts of things. Okay. Your eyes do not need to glaze over. Basically, just know if you're listening to this podcast and you have any intellectual stirrings at all, Marx hated everything good in the world. Marx hated traditional Western life. He hated the family. He hated marriage. He hated private property. He hated what he called capitalism. Better term for capitalism is the free market. Never use Marx's term. Anyway, I digress. And what happens with Marx is that even though he's this economic theorist, his ideas end up fomenting revolution all over the world, especially in the 20th century. And tons and tons of people uh, join up against uh, 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 the, the, the means of production, the power brokers of society, and die because of it. So Marx is terrible. Marx hates everything scripture stands for. Quick commercial on Karl, Karl Marx. Now let's jump over to the church. Here's the problem with evangelicalism of the last 80 years, okay? The American evangelical church is what I'm talking about when I say that. A, a whole array of denominations. Basically, a lot of Christians think that their fundamental task is to be like the world. And if I can add a phrase, to be liked by the world. By the world, of course. They think that they are not just having a decent day at the office, but they think that they are batting a thousand uh, at, at the local batting cage when they show especially elite, polished, culturally sophisticated, cool folks in the broader culture that they are not a mouth-breathing fundamentalist who believes in the Bible literally in all these sorts of ways. They think that they are actually helping the cause of Christ by being a kind of -of middle-of-the-road Christian who makes no waves, who is nice, who is pro-culture, and who doesn't launch any crusades against anyone. Now, there's a lot to say about that posture, but fundamentally, Why I'm raising that for our discussion, and I'll shut up here, is that when it comes to this massive movement I call wokeness, a lot of Christians posted the black square because they innately sense this this major tsunami, as I said, and they try to surf it, not go against it. And that has all kinds of effects. Well, and I think the issue that we're seeing here is that uh, Christians are not prepared to deal with this, which we'll get more into that here in a second. But all these churches are desperately trying to be liked by the culture that will only hate them because you can never bow low enough before the woke crowd. You can never apologize hard enough or loudly enough. And just think about all the people that posted the black square and then ran afoul of the woke mob only months later because of something they said or did back in high school. It's like they're, they're, it's a worldview that is completely broken from its foundation. And so this actually goes to another quote from your book. It's this in wokeness. However, there is no deeper ontological grounding for truth rather wokeness simply asserts its commitments without foundation beyond our own narratives. Human narratives are the grounding of truth in a woke system. 
So I forget who said the quote originally, Owen, but it's like having both of your feet planted firmly in midair. So talk to me a little bit more about that because gosh, it's convenient because if you're woke, you literally don't even have like a binding document or ideology. It could constantly move depending upon what argument you're in. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally as a Christian, I am, um, tethered to the word of God. So man, life in a fallen world is not boring. It is very hard. I have my own sin to fight. I, there's a devil who prowls, 1 Peter 5 eight, trying to devour anyone he can and get them to live for their lusts and their flesh and not for Christ. Um, but I, I, as a Christian, have been taken captive by God's grace. And so it's like I'm at sea and I have been strapped to the mast like sailors of old when the wind got really bad and the waves are 30 feet tall. The last thing to do really is just tie yourself to the mast and pray. And that's what that's what we do. But fundamentally, what we realize is um, is that wokeness is trying to cause us all to just buy into its assertions. But it, it that's all it does. It doesn't offer you a text. It doesn't offer you a priestly class. It doesn't really offer you a worldview. I think I use worldview in that quote you cited, but it's not it's not even trying to give you a coherent system of all things. Kyle, that's actually a huge part of how it advances. It's mm. shadowy. It's not all defined. It's slogans. It's banners. It's marches in the street. It's Molotov cocktails into supposedly white supremacist businesses that have been erected off of the evil structure of capitalism. It's shooting a police chief, African-American police chief, in the head in St. Louis in Missouri, where I lived until last year, under the name of justice, under the name of social justice. And and shockingly few people do what you are doing and your listeners are doing and try to probe Forget whether we're agreeing or disagreeing. Just even understand what the tenets of the system are. When Black Lives Matter put out its initial platform and they refined it a little, they just asserted that they should dismantle white privilege and the nuclear family and these sorts of things. But again, aside from a vague hand wave in the direction of Marx, and they are decided Marxists over there, there was no real grounding at all. And so... Yeah, this is a very bad movement to join up with for many reasons, including there's no foundation for it anywhere. Well, that's the thing is they get really mad, people on that side, when you just point at them. So the stuff that they put up on the, the BLM website where they want to do away with the nuclear family, they want to do away with, you know, heteronormativity or whatever the nonsense that stuff they said. Well, a bunch of people took screenshots of that, obviously, and then they took it down from their website. And then they're like, why do you even care? It's our website. It's not even there anymore. But it's like, you didn't disavow those beliefs. You just took them off your website because you were getting too much heat. But also the word games that they play. This is especially nefarious in the government schools because they're like, oh, we don't teach critical race theory. Here, look at all of our curriculums. Uh, there's no mention of CRT, any of those types of things. Now they call it social emotional learning or they call it this, that, and who's it's, what's it, or whatever they want to call it. But you're using the tenets of that worldview, you're just not calling it by its name, but it's easy to do. It's easy to kind of play that shell game uh, in terms of what you were saying. But for Christians, they have to understand that we aren't just opposing this ideology. We're at war with this ideology. So I want to read another quote from the book here. We must also remember that engaging wokeness is not going to war against flesh and blood. It may be presented that way, but as Christians, we war against spiritual powers, Ephesians 6, 12. 
This means, among other duties, exposing and confronting the false teaching of men and women. But our goal here is not to condemn or cast out, but rather to help, strengthen, and call the straying back. So in the film Uncle Tom 2, which, you know, Salem, the producer of, or the uh, the distributor of your book and all that, they helped with the release of Uncle Tom 2. Vody Bauckham is, is featured prominently in that, and obviously he wrote the, uh, the book Fault Lines around the same time Christianity and Wokeness came out. But he was talking about how these murals in these black communities of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Brown and all these Brown. people that those are the new stained glass windows of this movement. Right. And I thought it was one of the most powerful quotes I'd ever heard that he was just basically saying right off the cuff. But that was another kind of through point of Uncle Tom, too, is that, guys, this isn't just a difference in opinion, you know, choosing, you know, a red shirt or a blue shirt. This is so much different. It goes far deeper than we can even fathom. But I'll let you go from there. Yeah. That, I love Vody's work. I'm so thankful for it. Um, there are hard texts behind this movement. Let me just add a, a further word from what I was saying a minute ago. Uh, there's a book called Critical Race Theory, colon, An Introduction, which I love to post as a screenshot on social media whenever some news anchor somewhere says, critical race theory, that's just been dreamed up by racists in Oklahoma or Arkansas. I live in Arkansas now. And so it's like, no, here's the book, critical race theory, colon, an introduction. So there, there are hard texts, but even those texts are slippery. There's not a lot of ontological grounding even, even there. Critical race theory starts out as a legal movement uh, uh, in, in, in the most precise sense. And so what I realized in writing about all of this, the reason I wrote Christianity and wokeness and not Christianity and social justice or Christianity and CRT was that I realized, yes, there's a hard form of this, but very, very, very few people are ever going to read Derek Bell. Um, they are, however, uh, going to watch the NBA or the NFL a year or two ago and see all sorts of slogans about social justice or stop mm -hmm. killing us or equality. They're going to watch the premier league, um, Premier League guy like Aston Villa, at least I used to until Grealish moved and um, he, should, he should not have moved. But anyway, and they see the players taking the knee. So so that there's always a hard form of ideology, a hard form of Marxism, let's say a hard form of the Enlightenment. And the philosophers write the, that form. And then there's usually a soft form. And that's what the people imbibe almost without even knowing it. And so that's why I use the term wokeness, because most people can get themselves off the hook, especially in the church. Some pastor who's doing a forum on racial justice and it's thoroughly woke, but he's never read CRT. He can say, I don't, I don't know anything about CRT. Some of those public school teachers that you critiqued a minute ago, they honestly, they haven't read CRT books, but that doesn't mean they're not thoroughly woke because there's a soft form of it. I'm going in, in my book, Christianity Wokeness, I'm going against the hard form because you got to know it and I'm going against the soft form. Okay. So we need to go deeper into that because that's exactly where I was going to be going next. So it's kind of like you're reading, reading my mind, but a lot of these people, and I, I don't mean this to be as demeaning as it's going to sound, but like these, these school teachers, a lot of them are useful idiots. Like they're, they bought into the ideology because they didn't want to be uh, mean and they didn't want to ruffle any feathers. And yet they're pushing a worldview that they don't even fully understand. So I want to read this quote because after I read this, Owen, I mean, I highlighted it. I wrote in the margins. I was like, this kind of blew my mind because I'm the one that kind of preaches this stuff. And then I was like, Ooh, I kind of got caught with my pants down a little bit. So let me read this quote here. 
we are prepared for what you would call soft postmodernism, the belief that there is no objective truth, no ought in life, and that science tells us the meaning of the cosmos. We are not prepared for the hard postmodernism that is now dominant in our culture. Unlike the earlier form of 10 to 30 years ago, hard postmodernism presents a very carefully framed argument, many oughts, and clear good group and bad group, and maintains that science, like all disciplines, is shot through with Western rationalism born of white supremacy. What a stupid sentence to even have to read. But anyway, I'll get back into it. If you do not know this, however, however your good intentions may be, you are equipped for a different struggle than the one that is knocking on your door. Wokeness is not soft postmodernism. Wokeness is hard postmodernism. So, Owen, at Undaunted Life, we equip men to push back darkness, okay? That is why we're on this planet. Now, one of the examples I use is you want to go to your school board meeting and you want to get critical race theory or any of the LGBTQ nonsense kind of pushed out of your kid's curriculum so that they can learn how to read and write and do math and all that basic stuff that we used to learn in school. But if you don't understand where this worldview comes from, you can very easily be dismantled by one follow-up question. But this one hit me because it was like, I've been preparing people for the soft postmodernism where it's like, yeah, there's no truth. There's no absolute truth. But then when you have these other people grounding their ideologies in Ibram X. Kendi or, you know, uh, Eric Mann or any of these other people that have kind of created this whole worldview, it becomes a massive issue. So go a little deeper on soft and hard postmodernism. Yeah, I was working off of an insight from uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, uh, who wrote the book Cynical Theories. And I would disagree with them on some very key worldview issues, but they really put their finger on a number of important points in Cynical Theories. And one of the points they made, I believe they call it reified postmodernism in Cynical mm -hmm. Theories. And I changed it in my book. I cited them, but I changed it to hard postmodernism. Um, that That is where... You, you don't have any deeper epistemological structure. You, you don't have that sacred text, for example, that we were talking about earlier. But you act like you do. You act like your um, ideology, you act like your imperatives are grounded and are true, um, even though you're not you're still postmodern, right? So, so, so there's no foundation ultimately for them. That is very different than soft postmodernism, which is the, the form, as you said a minute ago, that a lot of us were battling, starting to battle 20 years ago that you were hearing about that featured the clash of the new atheists and evangelicals and lots of debates, Christopher Hitchens and Doug Wilson and others. Uh, the, the point is this, with soft postmodernists are, are the ones who want to live and let live. You have your truth, I have my truth. And what that ends up meaning on a lot of college campuses, for example, is what college students have used numerous ideologies to let it mean, which is I want to live according to my lusts and do what I want. And mom and dad and the pastor back home can't tell me any different. Well, humanity is always questing, always questing for an ideology that justifies and unleashes our innate depravity. We all want it innately. And, and we use not only these ideologies and worldviews we're talking about, but lots of them. Anyway, so soft postmodernism is what the church has been equipped. It's what our guns, so to speak, are, are cited for. But we were not ready for hard postmodernism of the last five to seven years. And that's why our lunch is being eaten by the woke. It's because there's something different than some floppy-haired live-and-let-live kid at NYU it's now that, that, let's say, evangelicals who go to NYU are being told matter-of-factly 
as if it is ontologically true that their white skin basically makes them a white supremacist. That's a different animal than soft postmodernity. The church has not cited its guns. The church built the Maginot line. And what happened is we got blitzkrieged. So part of that, I feel like, Owen, and you, you do talk about this in your book, is that we have this overwhelming focus and emphasis on race. But that race in and of itself is not even a biblical category, right? So they're, they're, you know, ethnicity is, but race is not. So, so maybe talk about that a little bit, because I, I know you go into grave detail in the book about that, but that might be something that a Christian needs to hear today is like, look, you're overwhelmed with race, but you're forgetting that there is the human race, that ethnicity is a category. But if you're going to the Bible looking for how you should treat your black brother or how you should treat your, you know, Latino brother or something like that, it's like, you're not going to find the answer in the way that you think. Critical race theory has pointed out um, it, it does have one point to make. It is pointed out that race is a construct. But the problem with critical race theorists is that they then bizarrely take that truth and then actually treat race as if it is real. Uh, and and um, it's called strategic essentialism in critical race theory circles. In biblical terms, it, it again is true that, that the concept of race can be used against other people. You can invent lots of concepts to divide humanity into good and bad groups. And that is truly what happened with the concept of race. In the Bible, there's no grounding for the modern understanding of race. There's, of course, diversity of skin. There's diversity of background. There's diversity of ethnicity, of culture. Um, all throughout the scripture, there's Greek terms like ethnos, for example, to capture different ethnic groups. But there's no sense anywhere in the Bible that we're anything but one race. Acts 17, 26, God has made us one human race. We're all image bearers. So, so having white skin doesn't make me different than somebody who has brown skin or somebody who has black skin. Uh, we, we all have different shades of melanin, actually. And so um, there's a lot that this term race is used to do that the scripture in no way funds. Well, even beyond that, I, I just got through speaking at a men's event yesterday and I pointed out to everybody because there was a guy there who's like, he was like six foot nine or six foot 10 and I made him stand up and I, I used him as an example, but I was like, look, his height was given to him as a gift. He didn't sit in a room one day and like try real hard and be incredibly enormous. He just is that your skin color is a gift. Your athletic ability is a gift. Your height or shortness is a gift because it's going to give you an inroad to a gospel conversation at some point in your life or many of those conversations. And it had nothing to do with anything that you chose. And so now we live in this era where you're supposed to have pride in something that you had nothing to do with. Like it, it's just as dumb as people that are white supremacists. They're like, I was born this way and that's awesome because we're the most awesome. It's like, really? You didn't do anything. Like you didn't like wake up one day and decide you were going to do that so that you could have you know power over a particular group. But it's one of those things that people are buying into uh, in, in 2020. So even in, mo in modernity, we're buying into this idea that we, again, as well-meaning, loving Christians, should repent of sins, not by us, that were perpetrated by people that looked like us against people that don't look like us in the past right? It, it, they, they basically just call it reparations. But I'm seeing these Christians that are lamenting their skin and apologizing to black or brown people in their congregations for something that they themselves didn't do. 
Like I, and they think it's well-meaning and they think it's beautiful and they think it's loving and they're being cheered on by their woke pastor. That's probably a woman or something like that. But it's like, I don't understand where people are getting the biblical idea that reparations is a good thing to do. And you do a talk about that in the book in terms of, you know, lamenting the sins of your forefathers when you're not actually having to pay for them. So give us a little bit more on that. Whew, man, we could talk for hours just about that. Fundamentally, yeah, what fundamentally what people want, what men want, is straight talk. And they're tired of mealy-mouthed pastors and religious leaders. And so we need to be very clear that we have absolutely not a hitch in our spirit about naming sin in the American past, in our heart, the potential for sin in the future. So there are terrible stains of racism in the American past and Western history, for example. Let's be clear about that. That doesn't mean that all of Western history now is poisoned and we have to hate our country and hate everything about our society and our culture. It means that things are blended in a fallen world. What we need to understand about um, generational guilt is two things. Oftentimes the Bible doesn't just say one thing. It says two things. It says that God is one, one God, but then it goes on to say a second thing. God is three persons. That's two things. One God, three persons. Welcome to Trinitarian Christianity. We have to say this as well uh, when it comes to understanding humanity. Humanity has two federal heads. There's a fancy term. You said you wanted to talk theology, so everybody buckle up on this Mm. very exciting adventure ride. Um, you've You've got Adam, uh, who, who sins in the Garden of Eden, a real historical fall, real historical garden. He sins against God. He and his wife eat the forbidden fruit. They make us all sinners in the process. We're not victims of what Adam did. We're criminals with Adam. So Adam is our federal head. What that just means is he represents us and we become sinners in him. Then we have a second federal head. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies on the cross, sheds his blood for our sin, satisfies the Father's just hatred against us for our sin, and dies in our place. Okay, he's the second representative. All who have faith in Jesus Christ will be born again, saved, and live forever with God in the new heavens and new earth. Two federal heads. But here's the problem. Wokeness of the religious kind has corrupted what I just said. It's totally appropriate to understand Adam representing all of us and Christ representing all his blood-bought people. It is not right to think of my 13th great-grandfather as making me guilty for his sins. The only representatives that we can recognize are the ones that God recognizes. Ezekiel 18, 19 to 20 in the Old Testament actually goes so far as to speak against corporate guilt. It says that the the father is not responsible for the son's sins and the the son is not responsible for the father's sins. So I could keep going here at length. That's a lot of theology to pack into just a few minutes. Uh, If you want to double down, we can. But basically, we're guilty in Adam. We're justified in Christ. But but my son right now, Gavin, 11 years old, if I go out there and, and do something terrible in the streets of Conway, Arkansas, no guilt whatsoever transfers to him. There are no generational curses that the Bible recognizes. Well, I actually want to pull the thread on something that you kind of brought up that was a through line of that. And, you know, I'll actually just read this quote from your book. Our culture and society are falling prey to what we call monocausality. This means that we trace very complex realities to just one simple factor. So on my show, I talk about univariate analysis all the time. 
to where it's just like, oh, you know, these all these people are being killed with guns. We should probably just get rid of guns. And if you do a yeah. univariate analysis, that seems entirely plausible and seems like it would work. But then when you start digging down way deeper and say, what are causing these issues? Oh, not only does it get more complex, but it also gets more descriptive. You see how that works? But I feel like that's what we're dealing with right now is people want to say, well, I'm white and white people, you know, own slaves back in the day. So I should say sorry to a black person today. Whether we, we don't even know if that was a black person that was a descendant of a slave, descendant of a slave owner, if they came from Africa, like, you know, a year or two ago, like we have no idea, but because of what they look like and because of what we look like, monocausality or univariate analysis, we just go that route. Why, why have we become so enamored with monocausality? Well, I know the answer to this, but you know, I want you to talk a little bit further. It's because people are stupid and lazy and we just want things to be simple. We want to wrap them up in a bow and just shoot it off into the future and not have to think about it anymore. But Owen, that's not the world we live in. It's really not. Um, yeah, I mean, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman is an important book that helps us understand why society is where it is. You could trace things like entertainment culture. You could trace addiction to technology. You could trace the corruption of the Western university by Marxism and by postmodernism, such that universities become breeding grounds for activists, not incubators for thinkers uh, and doers. So there's a lot of things to say. If you think about the church, if you think about Christianity, the pulpit has been majorly dumbed down and uh, going to corporate worship is really about a feeling, feeling good spiritually about yourself and having music that rouses you or whatever, rather than it's great to have beautiful music, but rather than sitting under the truth of God's word and being shaped by it. You could say a lot of different things, but fundamentally, yes, we're desperate. How strange that we're in the soundbite era of like 10 second talking heads on ESPN or FS1 shouting at each other. And that's exactly what we want politically. I'm not against, you know, conservatives having short video clips and this sort of thing. I want to engage at all levels of technology and culture. I really do. And there's a place for sound bites. There's a place for Twitter. But fundamentally, if your intellectual diet is only that, is only TikTok, you are in a very bad place. Um, so uh, what we've got to recognize is um, you have to do hard work with these things. You can't reduce things to, to monocausality, as you say. You can't assume that because somebody has white skin, they have privilege and wealth and all sorts of great things. Even, let, let's even say this, sorry, real quick. If you see a, a wealthy white person, don't assume that they're living off the largesse of a, a, a slave owning uh, a forebear. That person may come from tremendous poverty. We don't know each other, but wokeness trains us to hate each other based on our skin color. There's a lot more to say. Suffice it to say that the world is complex and we should distrust uh, monocausal explanations in general. Well, we're going to leave some meat on the bone so guys will go out and actually buy the book and check it out. But uh, there's something that you talked about there and that you do talk about in the book. So I want to take a little bit of a left turn away from the race issue. And I want to talk about kind of the modern church. And the easy way to talk about it is mega churches. And I, I'm trying to draw a dividing line between, you know, mega churches that are healthy and the majority of mega churches that certainly aren't. But there was actually a quote from Christianity and Wokeness where you kind of talk about this a little bit. So I'll read it here. 
Armed with such a twofold calling, we remember that it is not our job to give Jesus good PR. We are not trying to niceify the Christian faith. We are not seeking to make it palatable to the natural man. We are not downplaying the hard truths of biblical teaching in order to get people in. We are striving as godly men and women to present the whole counsel of God in order to glorify God as witnesses and make disciples who obey all Christ commanded and taught as we see in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Well, in modern megachurches, a lot of these megachurches, it is what I say all the time, which is, the, the, the head senior pastor, who's basically the senior communicator, he doesn't do any pastoring duties. He has a board of directors. He's trying to figure out which, uh, you know, uh, next campus he's going to launch or which book he's going to write next or whatever. He basically builds his four or five week life lesson, his four or five week long Ted talk. And then he sprinkles some scripture over the top of it so he can keep its tax exempt status. And then he calls it good. And they don't want to talk about any of the hard subjects. They don't want to talk about race. They don't want to talk about LGBTQ issues. They don't want to talk about the transing of children. They don't want to talk about, uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam because all those things might affect their ability to keep the lights on because people love going to church, get their spiritual skittles, hear their rock concert and shoot out the door and have no life change, no discipleship, nothing whatsoever. But it's an easy box to check in our modern TikTok era where we want the most amount of content in the least amount of time possible so that we can get back to our regular lives. But we're doing ourselves a disservice as a modern church by supporting churches like that. But also whenever something real like critical race theory comes up that requires a full-throated and theologically based response, we don't have any theologians around to do that. We don't have any Christians that have been discipled up and mature Christians that have been eating meat and not drinking milk in order to push back against this darkness. So I feel like I'm preaching now, but you know, kind of give me a little bit more information on that, bro. Oof, speaking of sound bites, let's just clip that and uh, let's go home. That was, that <laughs> yeah, okay. was, that was fire. Yeah. I would just fundamentally say, amen. I don't know what else to add. I mean, yeah. Um, the church is, um, a church in too many places, not every place. There's lots of sound congregations. And by the way, to everybody listening to this, find one, man or woman alike. Find a strong doctrinal church. Don't worry about the size. Don't worry about how cool it looks. Don't worry even fundamentally about its branding. Find a place that is led by strong, godly men that stand on the word of God, that preach the word of God fearlessly. Join it, serve it, become a member do humble things, and watch as God blesses your life by the power of his gospel grace. Um, sadly, a lot of churches are ordered around what you said. They're ordered around, as we were talking about some minutes ago, accommodating the culture, trying to be liked by the culture, trying to, to probably, you know, to speak a little bit um, uh, uh, charitably, not be the world, but be as world adjacent as the church possibly can be to come as close. It's like youth group, bro. It's like youth. It's like the youth group question. How much can I do with this hot teenage girl before I'm in sin? Now Mm -hmm. we understand masculine instincts. We want young men to buck the trends. We want them to marry young women. We want them to build families and et cetera and so on. But fundamentally that is not a good question. The question is how holy can I be? By the power of God's grace in me, I'm not going to be perfect. We all sin in many ways. James 3, 2, we all stumble, me included. But how holy can I be? But the evangelical church has been asking, how close to the line of the world can I get? And that's just the wrong question. And too many churches 
are ordered around that. Listen, you don't have to be some weirdo congregation that has no grounding. It's like you live in Mars in order to be faithfully Christian. You can be fun. You can be friendly. You can be warm. You can be loving. That's good. Um, there's a lot of biblical material about that. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control, kindness, these sorts of things. Men need to display these things as much as women. But fundamentally, we're not trying to get as close to the line as we can. Find a church that's going to take you deep in the word of God and tie yourself to the mast. That's what we need to do. Well, and that's the thing that I tell people all the time, because like I, I went to a big time mega church for over 10 years and, you know, I just, you know, it kind of was what it was and I didn't advance at all. And then I went to a church uh, that I go to now, which is Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Dr. Mark Hitchcock, Hitchcock is the, the lead pastor there. And it doesn't have any of the feel of the previous mega church. And it's not, you know, it's not as fun. And there, there are some things that really drive me nuts about the church, but the overwhelming thing I have in my brain when I think about my church is man, my church is healthy. Like, yeah, do I wish this was a little different? Do I wish they would talk about this more? And do I wish that would be adjusted? Yeah, I've got my preferences because of, I'm a content creator. And when I see content that I don't like, I want to say, you know, Hey, let's change it and make it better. But the church is healthy. And how, how much of a blessing is it that that church has seen explosive growth in the last year or two? Cause you know, there was a big building expansion, but for the decades prior to that, it grew by a, a few dozen people a year, just kind of grew and grew and grew. And it wasn't explosive. It was just healthy. But what a lot of churches do now, I want to kind of move over into this area is the modern church may as well put neon signs up outside of their doors that say men we didn't do any of this for you. Nothing that you're about to see has you in mind, right? The pastor did not think of you whenever he was creating his sermon content. The band did not think of you when they were trying to pick out the songs or what key they were going to sing them in or the lyrical content of any of those things. And it's what Jordan Peterson talked about recently in his YouTube video, Message to the Christian Churches. We require so little of our congregants and specifically so little of our men. And you, you were talking about the youth. When you expect the youth to just hang out, play video games and eat pizza, and then you'll just kind of sprinkle a little gospel on them at the end. Don't be shocked when you don't see this tremendous societal change within your community with the youth, but the same is true for the men. You expect nothing of them and you basically tell them, Hey, we, we didn't do this for you. Churches for women and children. You know, you don't need to be here. And then you're shocked when the men aren't around when you need them, when they don't sign up to volunteer, when they don't sign up to go on mission, when they don't sign up to drive the bus to youth camp or any of those types of things. So it's like my buddy, Chad Prather said, it's like we gut shoot our preachers and then, you know, we get after them for not having any guts. Well, we're gut shooting our men. And then we love when father's day comes around so that we can take a diarrhea dump on top of their heads. But I want to talk a little bit just about man friendly churches. So you're the former president of the council on biblical manhood and womanhood. We've lost that even as a, an avenue of description now in terms of describing something as biblical man or biblical woman. It sounds so old fashioned. You know, you say the word headship and people are like, Oh, here we go. He's going to talk about Ephesians and tell me I need to wear a bonnet and go cook. But talk to me a little bit about how churches can be more man friendly, because if the church is going to have a future, especially here in America, like we're going to need the men. Yes. There's a strong parallel between the man problem you just described and my book that I am writing when we are off this podcast is the war on men. It's my next Salem book. And mm. I, I think it should come out in the next year sometime. So I'm literally on this issue right now that we're talking about okay. day to day, just burning it, bro. So exciting. I love doing it. So um, th there's a parallel between 
the problems with men that you just rightly described. And um, I'll just jump over to a related issue quickly and then jump back. Um, problems with mm, worldview and political approach. Okay. The church has given up discipling men and the church has given up forming a, a meaningful biblical worldview. I don't mean just the soft stuff. I mean like, okay, let's let's dig in. Let's talk about the hard issues, which you were talking about a few minutes ago. Let's talk about trans. Let's talk about LGBT. Let's talk about these kind of matters. Let's talk about abortion and not in a glancing way, not in a only we're going to be known by what we're for. We're for babies. Okay, great. But um, are you then turning around and telling women who abort that they're victims of abortion culture when they're actually murderers? You know, these kind of realities, even sound churches don't want to say the hard words anymore. And so what I've seen, even among my generation, your generation of preachers, is they will excoriate men for listening to Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink or whoever. Mm-hmm. And they will excoriate a lot of older Christians, especially for watching Fox News. Okay, neither of these two categories is composed in a large part of Christians. These should not be our primary places we're going for truth in these realms. But what has happened is the church has stopped speaking about manhood in a meaningful way. And the church has stopped speaking about politics or worldview in a meaningful way. And that has left many Christians with nowhere to go in terms of evangelical voices. So guess who they go to? They go to conservative voices or Republican voices or the intellectual dark web or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Okay, when actually the same pastors who are burning their people down for watching Fox News are the ones who have abdicated discipleship. Okay, so what this means is, <laughs> there's so much to say. We've I know. got to... Re- <laughs> you are unfair. You have put so much weight on this bar for me. This is too fun. What this means is we have to recover. I'm, I'm jumping out of politics. That's a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. We, we have to recover that political discipleship or whatever worldview discipleship. We have to restructure church, not to be a boys club, but to engage men. And the test for me, so much I could say, the test for me is the parking lot. Are there men in the parking lot when you show up to church? What I mean is, are they guiding people to their places where they need it? I mean, not in a weird way. Are they holding umbrellas for ladies in the rain? Are they holding the door open when you walk through? Are they shaking hands? Are they on the sides of the church? Are they watching? These are wild days. A shooter could enter any congregation at any time. Are there men? Do they have heat on them? Um, are there men, in, and then of course, are there men in the pulpit? Are there men leading? Do they lead in a masculine way? Of course, they're gracious and kind and filled with the fruits of the spirit, but are they are they men? I could go on, but that's my test, parking lot test. So the dichotomy for me, and, and you know, this is the first time we've interacted, so no reason why you would know this, but whenever I became a Christian at the age of 15, I was at that age where I was trying to figure out what it meant to be a man, and now I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. Okay. And what I found very early on is that, okay, all the manly men were outside the church doing man stuff. Right. And all the godly men were inside the church doing godly stuff, like praying for people and touching them on the shoulder awkwardly and shaking their hand somewhat limp wristed like, and then all the manly men were out doing like different things. And I kept that dichotomy Owen into my early twenties. And then I realized, wait a minute, Jesus was a rough dude. 
Like Jesus cast out a demon with his voice. Jesus snorted with anger when he arrived at Lazarus's tomb. Jesus cleared the temple with a whip of cords that he made. He left and in an act of premeditated, sustained, and intimidating aggression, came back and smoked a bunch of human beings and animals and ran them out of his dad's house, right? And I'm like, wait a minute. That's not the sense I get whenever I look at what's happening in the pulpit. When I see these mealy-mouthed preachers or these incredibly effeminate men trying to teach me how to be a godly man, it just it doesn't make sense. And you see a lot of guys, rougher guys, like the guys that listen to this show, they walk into a church— they see all these soft, doughy looking men and they're like, ah, I think I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go to the range. I'm going to prepare for my next fantasy football draft. I'm going to go play Call of Duty. And they, they don't engage because it's not engaging to them. And that doesn't mean your pastor should go up there with mud on his shirt and blood on his lip and eating beef jerky and then take off on a motorcycle out of the sanctuary. But if you look at your pastor and you don't see a man that you're willing and wanting to follow, look at all the examples from the great generals we had just from World War II. These men were will these. You know, corn-fed Iowa farm boys were willing to fight and die because of the general, because of the manliness of the general, because of guys like Winston Churchill, because of guys like MacArthur. And it's like, who are those guys today in modern Christendom, right? A lot of people have looked at me like, someone's told me, they're like, Kyle, you're like Joe Rogan, but Christian to me. Like, again, that's a stupid thing to say because of the differences in our in our platforms. But it's like, hey, I wish a guy like Jocko Willink or Tim Kennedy or Joe Rogan or, or Cam Haynes or any of those guys had a really overwhelming gospel message in addition to all their manhood, endurance and resilience messages. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. What has happened is that manhood has been isolated to a spiritual reality. It is absolutely true that the core of the Christian faith for a man and a woman is a spiritual reality. So it needs, so as a man, um, fundamentally to be a Christian is to be regenerated by the spirit, to be born again in, in, under the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, and then you live a life of virtue, according to the scripture, by the power of the spirit, you live out the teachings of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple. Okay. The problem is that what I just said is as far as many churches will go in engaging men. Then there's nothing beyond that for men to understand themselves distinctly as God-made men or women to understand themselves as God-made women. What, what our accommodationist church has done is it has, it has gender-neutralized Christianity such that um, everything is, is boiled down into sameness and all the similarities of discipleship between men and women are emphasized and all the distinctives in the scripture are very much downplayed, ridiculed, played down. So what, what we need to do is keep the spiritual core of Christianity, recognize that men and women are alike disciples of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we need to, tr we need to also recognize boys need training into Christian manhood. And, and similarly, girls need training into Christian womanhood. We fundamentally, most of us are going to have very different callings. Men are called to be a leader, protector, and provider in the name of Jesus Christ. Women are called to be a nurturer, homemaker, child raiser, submissive to their husband in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and so those are fundamentally different callings. Our bodies are different. Uh, those bodies reflect imperatives from Almighty God himself, men of wider shoulders, 1,000 to 2,000 percent more testosterone on average, uh, a deeper voice, uh, aggression, ability. Um, there's a reason why our sons often tackle us when we're home from work and our daughters often squeeze us and want us to hold them close. There, there's all sorts of things we can say. We have to not let discipleship of men, in some, 
um, be only spiritual. Our discipleship is spiritual at its core, but that flows into, uh, from the shared gospel core, that flows into Christian manhood and Christian womanhood. And that has all kinds of effects in terms of how you raise your son, for example. Uh, do you raise him to be able to handle himself in a fight? Is he outdoors? Um, are you are you not um, doping him up so that he stops being aggressive? But for example, as a father trying to funnel through much prayer, it's not easy to do this. It's up to God ultimately, but trying to funnel that aggression into good causes, into Christian manhood. There's so much more to say, uh, Kyle, but um, we can't we can't cut discipleship off into only spiritual reality. Yeah, you opened up a, a huge can of worms here, which is definitely going to lead to a second conversation, but unfortunately we're running out of time. But I think that the biggest issue that we see is in a culture that doesn't have rites of passage for men, we allow our young men to self-initiate into manhood. We allow them to choose. We allow them to pick when they become a man. First time they have sex, first time they uh, they get their driver's license, first job, when they move away to college, whatever, they just get to pick. And if you're not calling that out in your young man, and I'm, I'm now obsessed with this because I have two sons, I have a two-year-old and a six-month-old, I'm obsessed with this idea because I don't want them to just wake up one day and be like, well, I guess I'm a man. Why? Because I turned 18. But again, modern Christians and Protestant Christians, we don't do that. We don't have rites of passage. And again, you can go crazy, like, you know, having your kid put their hand in a glove full of bullet ants, you know, that's probably not the greatest idea. And that's not really going to do much for them other than to, you know, prove some physical resilience in that moment. But being able to call some things out in your son and say, here are some things that I, I love about you. And here are some things that everyone's going to love about you. But also here's some things that are going to cause you some trouble as you get older and as you grow, but also letting that young man know now that you're a man, whatever that time is that you've defined, here are some things that the community is going to require of you. Here's the responsibility that we are going to heap onto the bar that is on your shoulders because that's what's important. We need you in our church, son. We need you in this house, son. We need you on this team, son. And if you don't carry your weight, the entire thing will come down and not be what it could be. We have to be calling that message out in our kids. But Owen, I, I really appreciate all the time you've given us today. I know we've gone beyond that, but you, you got something else? Go ahead. I just have to say one more thing. I love your words there. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to make hash of your podcast uh, time allotment or whatever. But very quickly, men have migrated to the shadows because men have been kicked out of the the main center of American public and cultural life. And so, what you have now is men having their own places where they go that are that are uh, culturally taboo. So you think about this with sports to some degree, you think about it with MMA, these kind of realities, you think about it with movies or whatever it may be, hunting. Men ha men always like their own stuff and we need to give men their own spaces just like women need their own spaces. But fundamentally, we've got to recognize that even if we would see things in some of those pursuits where we would be like, okay, I affirm that, I don't affirm that. You know, there's if, if I was ever going to watch a, a fight with my son, I would not want him watching, you know, the parts where uh, attractive women are wearing underwear, but there is something, for example, to guys being tough. And um, again, as we were saying a minute ago, if you only have um, Christian manhood, meaning be gentle, um, you're not going to have the warrior aspect of biblical manhood. You're not going to have Jesus coming back to deal out death to Satan. So you cultivate toughness uh, in lots of different ways, just like you cultivate tenderness in lots of ways in boys. But um, you've got to preserve the ability for boys to be aggressive, um, to be physical, to take risks, to get hit, 
You have to balance these sorts of things, of course, wisely. But man, if you only coddle your kids and only preach safety at them the way our COVID culture, our lockdown culture has done, terrible culture for men, by the way, just live safely, safe, 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 safe. That's terrible culture for raising boys into men because fundamentally it's not safe to become a man. And so a lot more to say, but we've got to help our boys rightly cultivate their aggression and channel it in a Christian direction. I absolutely agree with that. You are certainly preaching to the choir here, but I'm so glad that you're writing a book like that. I think there need to be more books like that that go deeper. The number of Christian manhood books that I've been sent that are trying to recreate the will that John Eldridge did with Wild at Heart back in the day, but they're doing it so poorly because they're basically trying to say the same things without any level of nuance or poetry that John Eldridge has brought to us. And there's no heft to what they're doing. They're just like, you need to be better. How do we be better? Read your Bible and pray more. It's like, great. Thanks for the specificity. Now, now, how do I translate that into something that my you know four-year-old eventually will be able to understand? So I appreciate uh, the amount of time and effort you're putting into that and the amount of time and effort you put into today. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, it's just funny that Jordan Peterson is specific about like making your bed and, yeah. and, the, ch- and the church isn't. It's like, read your Bible and pray, which we must do. But then it's like, okay, what do I do to become a man? And so any pastor listening to this man, help men, disciple them, train them. You don't have to pretend you're Moses on a mountain, but like give them instruction, give them wisdom. We need more of those kind of men. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Jordan Peterson is the most influential secular non-Christian on the Christian church in existence today. There is a reason why young men to pastors out there, there's a reason why young men in your congregation are listening to Jordan Peterson more than they're listening to you. And if you don't figure out the reason for that, it's going to be a major issue for you and your congregation moving forward. Owen Strand, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Kyle. It was great. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Owen Strand. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, just a reminder to those of you that were interested, you entrepreneurs, you business owners out there, you need to text UPPER ROOM to 727-472-3860. That's UPPER room to 727-427 or 472-3860, 727-472-3860. That will get you an application and a time to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek of the Upper Room and the King's Council. So for the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to several of the books from Owen Strand. So I've got a link to his Amazon pages where you can look at Christianity and Wokeness, Reenchanting Humanity, and the Pastor and the Public Theologian. And then I've also got a link to his Twitter because he's very, very active on Twitter. He's a great follow. You should check him out there. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-record of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>